So I was reflecting on what to share with you for a long time this afternoon. I was thinking, what would be the most relevant topic? What, what would be of most value? What seems timely and important? Um, so I wanted to talk about what happens when boundless metta moves in the world. How does that show up in the world? How do we meet the world with these hearts that are open, sensitive as we are, right? We're so sensitive. And how do we, how do we move in this world with all this complexity? So I wanted to share some stories that um, hopefully will inspire you of people who have done that, of bodhisattvas and people who were just like us, <laughs> you know, had this experience of love and kindness and then moved in the world and, and then became a great light for everybody to be inspired, you know. So I wanted to start with a Hopi creation story. So it starts like this. So the Creator gathered all of creation together and said, I want to hide something from the humans until they are ready for it. It's the realization that they create their own reality. The eagle said, Give it to me, I'll take it to the moon. The Creator said, No, one day they will go there and find it. The salmon said, I'll bury it at the bottoms of the ocean. The Creator said, No, they will go there too. The buffalo said, I will bury it out on the great plains. The Creator said, They will cut into the skin of the earth and they will find it even there. Grandmother Mole, who lives in the breast of Mother Earth and who has no physical eyes but sees with spiritual eyes, said, Put it inside of them. And the Creator said, It is done. I think it's something really poignant about that because it's this everything we look for is already within. You know, we hear that. It's like, oh, put it inside and we can go on these long journeys looking, looking high and low, you know, and it's it's like, oh, it's inside of us. And in some way, that's what your exploration here has been about. Like, well, the love and the compassion, it's in us. And then we move about in the world, right? And how do we, how do we do that? How do we, how do we navigate in the world? So today, uh, it's Nelson Mandela's birthday. And I was thinking about what a great being he is. And he's 95 today. It's a long, long life, right? And he, we know he's been sick for some time in and out of the hospital. And and I'm pretty sure he's headed into the, you know, one foot in this world and one foot in the next, you know. It's time to move on. Uh, his body is uh, not holding up so well, but he's still alive and still, you know, talking and giving interviews a bit and so forth. But I was thinking about his life and his legacy as, you know, thinking about people who have been inspirational for me. And I was thinking about 
you know, he used to have this amazing life and then think about he served 27 years in prison. That's a long time. And, um, you know, in this film I watched about his life, initially he spent, I think, 11 years in a cell where he couldn't stand up all the way. So he was bent, his back got bent, he had some back problems as he was bent over. And then, you know, the first 10 or 15 years was very hard labor. So he spent hours banging rocks, hour after hour after hour, right? So then he went through all kinds of different levels of suffering that one must go through in that kind of condition, you know, to be hated and to be in prison. And, you know, he did start off as this, you know, lawyer. He was very educated and, you know, very much a human rights person. So... It's interesting that he could get out of prison and have such a dedication to love and compassion. And what's interesting about Mandela's life is he only was president of South Africa for five years. And in that five-year period, he set about dismantling every legacy of apartheid that he could. That was his whole agenda. It was every policy, every, every place, every, you know, everywhere where he could root it out and, and redo it. He did. And that doesn't mean there's not, there wasn't the legacy of the, the people suffering, but on a policy level, he tried to dismantle everything that he could. And um, it's interesting because one of his, his, I think, most known for tasks, him and Desmond Tutu, they put together the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. I mean, that was one of the first things he said. He said, we must, have a, we must now tell the truth and ask for forgiveness. And these were, you know, maybe some of you knew, these were these public declarations of people confessing heinous crimes. And it was all videoed, and it, they would show it, air it. It was aired on TV as part of a public thing where police officers who had killed African youth in Soweto Township, some people who had killed other people, and all of them were confessing on TV, asking the public for forgiveness, right? And it was this long process and it brought out a lot of emotions and it was a lot of struggle and they had whole councils and basically the people who confessed, they basically were pardoned. They were set free from prison. They were given forgiveness. That's why Desmond Tutu, he was this bishop, well-loved. He would grant them, you know, sort of God now forgives you, thank you, right? And they would confess and this went on for long periods of time. But in some way, it was very healing for the, the whole community. They grieved together. These stories of mothers who had missing children then found out the truth, right? It was like they sort of put to rest some of the ghosts. Not all of them, but some of them. And I just thought he had so much courage and willingness to want to do that. So I was, I was just inspired by that kind of life and this kind of dedication to that. You know, that he could come out of prison 27 years, forgive, reunite, dismantle a whole, just an incredible system of hatred, and then begin to move into love. And it's not that everything's fixed there, but in a short period of time, he did an enormous amount. You know, this kind of dedication to his country. And I just find that very inspiring. And as we come to this meta retreat, you know, we're nearing the end and it always on retreat, I always reflect or more in my life is like, how do I want to live on this planet? Maybe some of you have had those thoughts. Like, how do I want to live? 
what do I want to do? Right? What do I, how do I want to spend my days knowing that this life is impermanent? Right? Like what is, what is meaningful? I think there comes a moment in everyone's life where they, they, they dedicate themselves. <laughs> I don't know, maybe this happened to me when I was very young, or maybe I think I had initial dedication. And then when I came on my first retreat, or my first long retreat, my first retreat was quite opening. But then my long retreat, I think I was in the woods in Barrie, and I think I just, you know, it went through so much. It was kind of like one of those biblical moments on retreat. You know how you, you probably had something felt like that here, right? Some line in the sand, right? I will live differently. You know, it was this kind of declaration out in the, the trees and the forest. And it was as if I committed in that moment to living a certain kind of life. Like, I don't know why I'm here on this planet, but I'll serve love. I will, I will, I will do my best to embody these teachings. You know, I'll, 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 I'll try hard. And I sort of, I made a dedication in that moment. And I think all of us come to a period where we, we, we decide, I'm going to live this, I'm going to do this, right? I'm going to use this life energy. Uh, I'm going to use this meta in the world. I'm going to operate with this. And it, it comes at different times, you know? But there is a moment, and I think it's important to reflect on as you think about going home. What are, what are you... What are you dedicated to? What are you taking refuge in? And it's just to reflect. I like this quote by Margaret Mead. She says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. I find great sort of comfort in that, that sometimes I think we underestimate the power of love, right? We don't really understand its full potential. And the stories that I want to tell about tonight, I think, are with people who understood its full potential and then acted on it, right? Like, what would happen if I just moved from this place? I just trusted from this place. I just did what I love to do on the planet. You know, I think when we align our hearts and we listen and we lead with our heart and we, we, we like follow that. There's a lot of beauty, a lot of power, and a lot of healing that we can bring to this place that we love. This planet, this life, even if it's been difficult. Bodhisattva is a word I like, I use a lot. Bodhi means enlightened. Or enlightened mind, enlightened, and Safa means hero. So an enlightened hero. <laughs> and this is an archetype that we can sort of view ourselves instead of playing small. What if we what if we stepped up and we said, Wow, what if what if I'm here for something bigger than I even know? You know? It's like we somehow the ego, what's the worst thing I th- about the ego? Is it plays small. It's small time. <laughs> It's a tiny little box that it locks us in. And we feel claustrophobic in there, you know. That's the, that's the worst thing about the ego. We suppress our, you know, it suppresses itself, its beauty, its love, its light. It's like suffocates us, right? Somehow it's scared of the bigness, the, the vastness. I think somebody said that today, like, 
wow, I was doing this boundless meta and the ego dissolved and it was big. It can get bigger even. There's times when I was doing meta and I was like, every direction, you know, so much energy moving, coursing. How do we operate with that in the world? Can we take that into our daily life while we're walking down the street? This is my ongoing challenge. How do we integrate it? How do we not lose it when we go home, right? Or become influenced by the world and the media and the, the predominant culture. So Bodhisattva is someone who is committed to kind of living this life, I think, of a full heart in the world, a warm heart in the world. And they're sort of, they live it kind of fearlessly. And they live it because <clears throat> they understand the truth of interconnectedness. And I want to talk about that for a little bit because this is a core uh, teaching in the Dharma that's important that can, when we understand the full depths of this, we, we can act in ways because we're inspired that our actions are for the benefit of all beings because we're connected to them. So interconnectedness is part of a worldview which sees oneness in all things. Right? It's similar to the term interdependence. Sometimes we use that, interdependence. But both terms refer to the idea that all things are of a single underlying substance and reality, that there's actually no true separation beyond the physical appearance of things. Right? This is a sense of universal oneness. I think Dr. Martin Luther King really understood this a lot. Here's a quote by him that is beautiful. He, knew, he wasn't familiar with Buddhist teachings, but of course he would have to understand this to have done what he did. So he, this is how he describes it. You may have heard this quote. He says, in a real sense, all life is interrelated. All men are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. So he saw this, right? He saw this very clearly. Like, ah, I mean, you just to think that I think is amazing. So we're all part of this human family. Joanna Macy, an ecologist, who is uh, so beautiful, an elder teacher here, she says, our lives are inextricably interwoven as nerve cells in the mind of a great being. Right? And there's so many quotes by Albert Einstein who say the same thing. Like, oh, we're all here to love, to love this. And he would say, at the end of his life, as some of you may know, he said, I've concluded the universe is a friendly place. <laughs> you know, that was his great ending to his life. Like, there you go, right? After years of looking, observing. I think that's, that's nice, a scientist, you know? That's what the mystics also say, you know? So with this interconnected, interconnectedness, how do, we, how do we understand that in a practical level? 
Right? So we say metta practice is for the benefit of all beings. And my Tibetan teachers always say, every step you take on this planet's bring affects every other step everybody else takes. Like we're all breathing, we're all living. Seven billion people on this planet, and the planet itself is alive. Right? And we're so this, all, we're all connected. Our body is made of elements. We appear. Right? This is an interesting way to relate to our experience if we start to think of this because then we can be fueled by these qualities of compassion and love. Right? Oh, I do this for the benefit of others. Right? And we then think about a life of service. What if we were here to help this world in some way? If we stepped out of the box of ego, right? And we stood up tall, what if we were here to to be a light, to be to be used, for our talents to be used, our gifts to be shared, our hearts to be valued. What if we lived in that way? One of the problems with the egoic consciousness, another of many problems, but one of the, the ones, is that the ego mind fuels itself on war. It needs a problem to exist. You'll notice this. Right? If you're sitting comfortably doing your metta, your suffering will all begin like this. I, da 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 da. Me, I, mine, me, it starts to happen, right? Thoughts of I, thoughts of me, thoughts of separation. Out of the great one space of boundless love, a contraction occurs, right? And then right after that, a problem, right? This is kind of like how ego appears. Problem. Me, I, something's wrong here. It usually starts with that's the the, the second thing. Something's not right, right? And it looks for a solution. And then it often becomes violent, this sense of self, right? This sense of identity. It needs something. It wants something. Egos always want something. They want to get rid of something. They want something. They're not happy, right? They have a story that's usually pain and suffering, Right? It usually attacks other, compares itself to other. They don't want peace, actually. Because peace is sort of destroys them. Love love and compassion are like I guess kryptonite and Superman or something like that. You know, they, they sort of do away with it because what we do is we go back into harmony with the way things are. Right? So egos fuel themselves on violence, war, separation. So metta and compassion, you see, are really important when balanced with wisdom. To see this clearly, to understand this is important. I like this quote by the Upanishads. It says, watch your thoughts, for they become words. Watch your words, for they become actions. Watch your actions, for they become habits. Watch your habits, for they become character. Watch your character, for that becomes your destiny. All starting with a thought. Right? This mind is so powerful. Right? It conjures up everything. It's like creating all the time, heaven or hell. So this practice of metta is so important because it's our training, sort of our, our, our warrior training. You know, how do we respond to life? 
we learn to respond lovingly with compassion, with calmness, with consideration, the more and more we incline ourselves to live from that place, the more powerful we become. And the more we start to care about the world, right? When you have this loving heart, you tend to tend to things. Somebody was reporting that they were walking and their shawl fell and five people ran to get it, right? <laughs> like, wow, right? That wouldn't have happened out on the street somewhere else, I don't think. Maybe one person, maybe somebody would have noticed, right? It's like, you see, out of a warm heart, there's a receptive movement towards. Right? It's like, oh, something's happening, let me fix it. It's not even conscious. It's like, oh, yes, of course. You know, let me clean that, let me help that. Are you okay? It's not actually conscious. It's when we're in our heart, it's a movement towards wholeness, healing, helping, changing, loving, caring, loving this environment. And that brings me into one of the people I want to talk about. And that is um, Wangiri Matai, this African environmentalist. That uh, I watched a film about her a few years ago. I'd heard about her winning the Nobel Peace Prize. First African woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize and first environmentalist to win the Nobel Peace Prize. And um, Wangiri died a couple years ago. This is one person I'm sad that I didn't make a huge effort to go try to meet in person. And she founded the Green Belt Movement. And then she was, she's so many firsts with her. She was the first woman to get a PhD in East and Central Africa. First woman, right? She had all these, she was the chair at the University of Nairobi. She was also a biologist. But what I loved about her in her films and all the work is she loved the earth with a fierce passion. And that was what triggered her whole life of environmentalism. Before it was popular in East Africa, she would say, look at the trees, they're, the trees, they're, they're cutting the trees. So she started planting trees, right? And she would, in one of her films, she would say, the, the earth, it's like the skin, our skin. This is the skin of our mother. And she would lay on the ground, I love the earth, right? How could we not love this place? Let's plant trees. And she started teaching all these people her organization, the Green Belt Movement, has planted to this date 51 million trees in Kenya. Right? And she would go to the trees and say, these are life, fruit falls, this takes care of us. This is a, you know, and she had this love. And even though her life was in danger at different moments, she still continued. Why did she continue in all her interviews? She would say, because I love this place. How could I not? Right? I love these people. It was this love, this metta that fueled her. She was always joyful, right? And they tried, they, they tried to kill her. When, one dramatic moment, some, you know, anti-environmental people shot and tried to shoot at her and they arrested her several times. And one time she even wrote her name in blood just so that someone would know that she was beaten. She signed her name, she was arrested and she had to sign a paper. And she said, I'll sign it in blood so that it stays. Somebody knows what happened here, right? And she tells the story, but not with bitterness. It was always with this great love. And so I was inspired by her action that she could, you know, lead something and end up 51 million trees later. Wow. So she was honored throughout her work for her democracy and peace and had all these awards and all these things. So again, what happens when we take what we love into the world? What happens when this boundless heart moves? 
right? What, what can we create? And I think that's what I wanted to inspire everyone to tonight. How can we live here? Because I feel that there's some urgency in this conversation, actually. There's an urgency now that I think we're living in a time where things are changing very quickly. And I'm not sure we have the luxury not to be involved. I'm not sure that we do. I mean, we could watch things from the sidelines and that could be a teaching in and of itself. But what if we were willing to serve in the midst of this or, or live a life that was really dedicated to making a change, to helping so Wangiri, she inspires me, her film, so you can learn a lot about the Green Belt Movement and all, and all the inspiring work that has happened because of that, this tree planting, right? Because of her little nine-year-old boy in Holland, he decided to plant a million trees. So he's on like 100,000. Uh, people give him money and all. I mean, it's like, you know, because one person sparks and another person sparks. It's so uh, interesting in that way. I like this poem by Mary Oliver called The Summer Day. She writes, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper. I mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't exactly know what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So that's the question, I think, always to consider. What are we, how do we want to live? What are we dedicated to? I feel like the retreats are wonderful because we press the pause button and we can check in deeper. What's happening here? (laughs) Reset button. That's kind of better, right? A reset pause button. But it's hard because, you know, one of the things is that what we're up against is a society that's very difficult to live in. Sometimes I feel sorry for myself with that. I can go, oh, it's so hard living in Oakland. Oh, God. You know, I live in East Oakland at that, right? So I was like, oh, people are acting out, you know. I think, oh, I can't go anymore. But what happens is I think of all these great beings and it makes me stand taller. They, they can go, you can go, right? Yes, we just keep going, we keep going. But I have compassion for that because our society teaches very strange things, right? We learn, the youth learn. This is from John Gatto, New York City Teacher of the Year, who's giving a big speech. There's a lot of teachers and educators here, so I read this for you. (laughs) Principals of high schools, all kinds of things. So our society has forgotten to teach love, he says. 
Think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a religion. So this is kind of what, you know, we're sort of up against this machine of just, and young people are influenced. But I think one of the things that we have to do is stay true to our practices. We sort of have to hold a flame, and sometimes it's hard. You know those Olympic athletes that you... I just remember when I was really young, I lived in Los Angeles and the Olympics was there. And they would carry the torch for long periods and somebody would be running. It would be heavy, right? Some, some, some woman would have to run 10 miles with it like this, right? And at the end, it was kind of like, okay, pass it off to the next person. But I remember like, wow, they're carrying this torch. And sometimes we have to be like that. We carry, wherever we're from, we have to sort of embody this. We carry it. We carry the metta inside as a, as a light, And we can provide light for those who don't see the way. Your practice makes a difference in the world. This is by Thich Nhat Hanh. He wrote, When the crowded refugee boats met with storms or terrifying pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone else to survive. So this is sort of what's happening. There's this great shift, right, where people are beginning to stand up and there's a growing number, growing number. Dharma centers are flourishing right now. I'm so happy. Every time I say, like, open my email, another center pops up, another invitation. Can you come here? Can you come here? It's almost like keeping up with it, right? And I feel deeply inspired that at the same time there's all this sort of what we might say destruction, there's this huge influx of creativity, mindfulness, meta-retreats. I don't think there would have been anyone here 20 years ago for this retreat, actually. I don't know if the time would have been right. right? Things hit at a certain time. So we're at this time where people are interested in love. right? They're understanding that it's crucial. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday you will have been all of these. George Washington Carver. So we take our metta into the world. And another inspiration I want to share with you is um, Malala. Malala Yusufzai, Yusufzai, yes, Malala, a 16-year-old girl from northwestern Pakistan who I've been sending lots of metta to this whole retreat. And um, somebody I have been following and I feel is a great bodhisattva on the planet and I feel deeply inspired by her and I just feel like she's going to make a huge difference. And I've never seen anyone at such a young age channel pure wisdom and knowledge and love like this. It's really inspirational. So Malala, she was the one that um, you might have heard the case. She became an activist when she was 11. She actually started writing a blog for the BBC. An incredible blog. A blog that you would think 11-year-old wrote this? It's impossible, right? About life 
under the Taliban, who had resurged and was creating havoc in her community, right? They destroyed a bunch of schools. Her father, who's uh, an educator, was also under attack, right? And so she started, somehow, this BBC group, she set out to them, and they started doing this blog. She started sending in what her life experiences were like. And she started to talk about education and women's rights. And she also started to talk about the Taliban in a way that was not uh, unacceptable to them. She started telling the truth about them, saying that they're not... And also saying that they, they misinterpret Islam. So imagine a girl saying that publicly, right? You are misinterpreting Islam. It's pretty much a death sentence, right? So what happened was uh, the New York Times was fascinated by her and she got a lot of attention because she was so articulate and eloquent and, and just amazing. She captured everyone's attention. She would stand and speak with this power and this love and this clarity. Uh, so they did a film about her life, the New York Times, right? All about her. And they started airing all around. So the Taliban got upset. So they tried to assassinate her. She was in a bus with her friends on the way home from school and they shot all of them. So Malala luckily survived after being shot multiple times. She had a head injury, a neck injury. She was near death, and she ended up having to spend like six months in recovery in England. They moved her to England so she could get all of this different care. But when this happened, it galvanized everyone. Right? This girl was shot, and people were like, that's it. Right? It, kinda, it was like a lightning rod. Even people in Pakistan, people all over... And all kinds of people went to visit her, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton. I mean, she had dignitaries. People were praying for her. Even I got caught up, and I was sending her prayers. I would watch, track the story on CNN online. Is Malala okay? She would just keep coming in my mind. I didn't know. I was like looking, and they would see pictures of her in recovery, different stages. And then they said, Malala's reading today for the first time and had multiple surgeries. So I was inspired to think about her because I, she finally was good enough to do a UN speech. She's 16 now. She gave a powerful speech that went out all over, about a 13-minute speech that was incredible about how she's going to basically change the world, how education is for girls around the world and poor children. And it was just so beautiful. And um, when I was taking down some notes, there was on the New York Times website, there was a Taliban response to her that quickly, basically saying, we're going to kill you. And she was fearless. She said, whoever shot me, I forgive you. She quoted the Buddha. She talked about love, compassion. right? But she said, I will not stop. Right? I will not stop. And that just touched me. And of course, her organization now is growing and Angelina Jolie is giving her all this money and all that. I mean, it's just like the more they try to squash it, the bigger it gets, right? It's like you try to squash the light and it just grows. Like they don't know what to do now. Now it's like they're going to start building this new school and call it Malala School. And uh, I mean, and they had a whole movement by the former prime minister of England. He's like, we're starting a whole new education with the new UN called the Malala Fund Project, right? So the more they've tried to diminish her power or what she's standing up, the bigger it is. That's love in action. And she says she's doing all this because she loves people. She loves education. And her depth of understanding and use of words and terminology and under, is incredible. I don't understand how she can speak the way she does. It's 
it's, it's incredible. I encourage you to watch, uh, watch that when you're oh, done from retreat and be inspired by somebody so young. So she inspires me a lot. And um, I think about the Dalai Lama a lot. And he said in his quote, never give up. Some of you may have this. Somebody gave this to me and I put it up on the wall at our, our center in Oakland. Never give up, he says. No matter what is going on, never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy in your country is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. I say again, never give up. No matter what is going on around you, never give up. And so I think that's how we have to be with our practice in some way. Like, can we not give up? You know, on ourselves, don't give up when it gets really hard. You know, or it seems like, ah, everybody's attacking me or things are going wrong, or I don't know how I can do this. I feel like there's a force of love that we, if we believe in our, our gifts and we sharing, it will work out. This doesn't mean there won't be challenges. Look at Malala, right? This is an obstacle being shot, right? <laughs> she could have said, that's it, I'm going to stay home, right? Instead, as soon as she's better at world stage, right? It's like, there's something about that I love. Mandela could have gave up in 27 years in prison. Right? It's like, no. Became the president. Right? A national figure. These are bodhisattvas who believe uh, in the power of truth, too. The Buddha, one of my favorite quotes that's on my website by the Buddha, he said, there's three things you cannot hide for long. The sun, the moon, and the truth. <laughs> right? Like, ah, the truth, the truth about who we are too, our true nature. This is what we're revealing to ourselves over and over. It's really important. This is important work that we're doing here. And you know what's interesting is there's a huge shift. What's happening here is becoming very mainstream in a way. And that makes me really glad. From neuroscientists to you know, students to all kinds of things. This is a funny story. I think you'll, you'll get it. Uh, it's by Jay Digzit. A friend was walking in the desert when he found the telephone to God. The setting was Burning Man, an electronic arts and music festival for which 50,000 people descend on Black, Black Rock City, Nevada for eight days of radical self-expression. A phone booth in the middle of the desert with a sign that said, Talk to God, was a surreal sight even at Burning Man. The idea was that you picked up the phone and God or someone claiming to be God would be at the other end to ease your pain. So when God came on the line asking how he could help, my friend was ready. How can I live more in the moment, he asked. Too often I feel un- life is unbearable. My mind is crazy. It's madness. What could he do to hush the constant negativity of his buzzing mind? Breathe, replied a soothing male voice. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> My friend flinched at the tired New Age mantra and then reminded himself to keep an open mind. When God talks, you should listen. <laughs> 
Whenever you feel anxious about your future or your past, just breathe, continued God. And my friend got more agitated. He said, try it with me a few times right now. Breathe in, breathe out. (laughs) And despite himself, after a few minutes, my friend finally began to relax. That was his opening into going to a Vipassana retreat, right? So some, I try to imagine who was on the phone doing that, right? So some (laughs) Dharma teacher that we know, basically was teaching meditation, right? So I don't know how many people probably picked up that phone in various states, people tripping, people, (laughs) and this person would answer and nobody could find any of the chords or how it happened. It was all, but somebody was manning that phone 24 hours, like, breathe, teaching, (laughs) come into the, right, your mind's crazy, breathe in, let's do it, and was doing the meditation. So I feel happy when I read little things like that, like, this is a very good sign here. You know, that we're, we're somehow going in the right direction on these practice levels. So we, you know, we're working together. We're learning how to live in this world. And it's like, we will go home and there will be so many challenges. Right? As there always is. That's the bittersweet part about this process called living. You think, you know, you come to a meta retreat and you think, oh, my heart's open. Done deal. But then you get home and there's stressors. Right? Stuff goes wrong. I remember, you know, a friend of mine told me she went home from a meta retreat and somebody stole her tires, right? She called me going, why did this happen? I go, well, it doesn't have to do with meta. I mean, (laughs) I was like, this is the world, right? It's beautiful and crazy at times. And there's a certain way it's like, can we accept that? I think at first I used to fight with things, right? Expect everybody to act the way I wanted to act when somebody was acting out. Now I have very little expectations of anybody. This helps a lot, right? <laughs> because I have a lot of gratitude when things go well. I go outside, my car's there, great. Right? <laughs> I've had so much stolen from me in the last few years. I'm like, I don't expect anything really anymore. It's like, okay, you know, when you live that way, it's more fun, you know? <laughs> Because something's always going to go wrong, right? A lot of things will go right, but a lot of things will go wrong. And if we shut down because outer conditions are not predictable, we'll never be free. We'll never be free if we're dependent on that. We have to somehow live with an open heart, with people acting out, with, you know, politicians, with, you know, we still, we still go forward. We don't give up. Right? We don't give up. And I think that's the important thing. This story makes me laugh. Roberto Di Vincenzo, the famous Argentine golfer, once won a tournament. And after receiving a check and smiling for cameras, he went to the clubhouse and prepared to leave. Sometime later, he walked alone to his car in the parking lot and was approached by a young woman. She congratulated him on his victory and then told him that her child was seriously ill and near death. Di Vincenzo was deeply touched by her story, took out a pen, and endorsed his winning check for payment to the woman. Make some good days for the baby, he said as he pressed the check into her hands. The next week he was having lunch in a country club when a PGA official came to his table. 
Some of the guys in the parking lot last week told me you met a young woman there after you won the tournament. DiVincenzo nodded, yes. Well, said the official, I have news for you. She's a phony. She's not married. She has no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. You mean there's no baby who is dying, said DiVincenzo? That's right. Well, that's the best news I heard all week. (laughs) So you might as well focus on the positive at that moment. Money gone. (laughs) Right? Things happen like that. Right? If we think that our value, our value is based on external conditions, it's not. It's based on the quality of our heart. Right? Our quality of our, our love. Can we love well? Right? This life is bittersweet. It breaks our heart. It sends us to the highest places and the lowest lows. And somehow we have to just keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. I like this prayer, uh, St. Francis of Assisi. I feel a connection to him. He's very natured, just nice. So he says, I'm sure you've heard this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in the giving that we receive, it is in the pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. So I think in some way when he always interpreted the last line, it's in the dying that we are reborn to eternal life. It's like the dying of the ego. Like something else dies and then this loving awareness is all that remains. You know, that's what people say it is on the other side of ego. Is what, what happens when all our stories are gone, right? We've let them all go. It's like what remains is loving awareness. People report that compassion and a ceaselessly responsive attitude, right? How we move. Some shawl falls on the ground, get it. We go, you know, something happens, we move toward. So that's inspiring. So the last story I want to share about is someone who I've also been deeply inspired by, another Nobel Peace Prize winner. <laughs> I'm sure Malala will win the Nobel Prize. They are nominating her, but um, Mohammed Yanis. Eunice. He's the founder of Grameen Bank. And I was very touched by his story reading about him because he had this he's a huge heart. He's known to have a heart. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in two thousand six and he immediately gave all the money to a hospital in Bangladesh, right? It's like everything is out. Like he just wants to serve. But he, you know, was an economist and um, a professor and he was in a marketplace where he had this this is what's so interesting is, again, it's just a moment, right? And then it sets something, sets something on fire, right? Just a moment. So he, he's in Bangladesh, very poor country, right? Very poor country. 
so much poverty. And so he is in a marketplace and he goes up to, is in a, a stall and there was these women with these beautiful hand-woven bags and baskets and these kind of items. And he stops and he says, oh, this is so beautiful. And he started talking to her about, you make such beautiful things. And he engaged in a conversation, well, how much, is, how much can I buy this for? But she told him how much she made. He, she had to pay somebody else. She had to borrow money to get the, um, sort of the materials. But the person charged her so much, she almost made nothing from what she created. Basically, she was like an indentured servant, right? She made like one penny and had to pay him all the rest, right, for the loan. And he sat there and he was so saddened and he said, I can't witness this. This woman deserves better. These items she's making are beautiful. I, 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 and he, at that moment, he thought, we'll start a bank and we'll do micro lending. And he said, if I loaned you money, would you pay back over time? And she said, yes. And then I started with a group. If I, all these women. So to this state, they've lent $6 billion dollars. Almost all of it has been paid back, right? Most of it, 97% of it has gone to women, poor women, pulling them out of poverty. They found great success. They have a, almost everything is repaid, right? So basically he set in motion this bank and it's now a pilot for everywhere else of how micro lending, individual small loans that they pay back with no interest, right? How did this helps? Helps, helps. And so he's, they estimated that he's helped 17 million people. That's pretty good at the end of one's life. They could say, that was good. I helped 17. I, I would die with peace with that, right? There would be a certain contentment like, okay, this I tried, right? <laughs> I think that's the important thing about this is that we try. That we try, Right? The heart, when it's open and it sees suffering, it moves, right? It's like, let, how can I alleviate this, right? He had this thing, he sees this woman, and in that moment, meant to happen. I don't want to see you like this. This is too beautiful. You should be abundant, right? Let me help you start your business. And then the whole thing is planted. The seed is like that. You know, we're inspired by love, you know? So he had the ability to figure it all out, and 30 years later, you know, He's created all kinds of, you know, he's so famous. He's done all kinds of things and led all, you know, all kinds of, I mean, he's won hundreds of awards, right? So we think about it like this. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, it's not survival of the fittest, but survival of those who cooperate the most that make a species prosper. None of us exist independently. We have to depend on others simply to stay alive. Thus, helping others and sharing wealth benefits both self and others. He says, generosity makes us happy now and enables our species to continue to prosper. And it creates positive karma that brings us prosperity in the future. In addition, it is an essential trait of an enlightened being. Who ever heard of a stingy Buddha? And, you know, when I was at his teaching, I remember the uh, teaching in D.C., he, was, he asked the audience, he said, okay, if you don't want to do anything to help the world, I get it, but just don't cause problems then, right? Like, let's keep it at a bare minimum, right? But I feel like we're here to do more than that, actually. And the awakened heart, the wise heart, the heart that's free, wants to move. 
It wants to create. It wants to, it wants to love. It expresses. It expresses. Sometimes I imagine the work that I'm doing in Oakland. I get ready to wrap up here. You know, we have this center in downtown Oakland. And I always think of it, and I have huge groups there. We do a lot of groups, and it's all donation-based, right? So, one's not getting rich from that, okay? So, and, you know, everybody is just giving what they can, you know? And, but when I always vision myself, I always think I'm grabbing one person's hand and pulling them up, right? It's like one hand pulls another hand, pulls another hand. And I love that image of that. It's like, oh yeah, you know, teaching class after class of people wandering in off the street going, how do I work with my mind spring? What is this happening in here? Can, I need peace. Can you help me? It's like, oh yeah, sit down. The class is starting, right? Let's start at the beginning, <laughs> right? We start where we are, right? One person can do somebody like this. You know, Muhammad is an economist. He helps that way. Somebody's an artist. Somebody's a dancer. Like, there's all these ways I feel that we weave this tapestry with our hearts that can be of of good use to others. We could serve. So I think you kind of get the point of the talk a little bit. That at this point, love in action is what is needed now. And for some of you, your action might be you stay in retreat for a long time, and that's beautiful. That's another form of action, right? We need those who are sitting in the mountains, and we need those who are out on the, you know, in the communities, helping, serving, sharing what you know. Everybody has something to share. So I think I'm going to end with this last prayer that I, I like to read by Shanti Deva. Shanti Deva was this great eighth century um, yogi, mystic, uh, teacher. He wrote the great text, the Bodhisattva Way of Life, and that's the one text I never forget when I'm on a retreat. And it's filled with it's this compassion and how to live in this world and beautiful teachings. But I'll end with this. This is the prayer that is often chanted as part of a bodhisattva vow that one can take. It says, May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be a light for all those in darkness. May I be food for the hungry. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May I be the doctor and the medicine. May I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed, just like space. And the great elements such as earth, may I always support the life of all the boundless creatures. And until they pass away from pain, may I also be the source of life. Shanti Deva. So we just sit for a moment.
Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.